Alright students, today is our final lecture on the Odyssey. Lecture 17, Introduction to Homer's Odyssey, books 23 and 24, slides 310 to 325, and we have come so far. We have come through the Telemachy, or the Telemachia, the first four books of the Odyssey, where we first met Telemachus. Saw that he was not the sort of person that did things for himself and needed uh, reminders from goddesses like Athena in the form of Mentes and Mentor and even in his form. We saw him meet Nestor in Pylos. We saw him meet Helen and Menelaus in uh, Sparta, and we saw him return back to Ithaca, and now we've seen what he can do, killing Amphenemus when he attacked Odysseus. We've now seen Odysseus in his journeys, his first journey, getting from Ogygia to uh, Scria with the help of Athena and Eno, and then we saw his journey recounted, and as I've listed it here, to the Phaeacians, all the way from the Cicones, the Lotus Eaters, the Cyclopes, Iolas, Lystragones, Circe, Anaia, uh, Hades, Threnakia, Ogygia, Scoria, and then he finally, in Book 14, made it back to Ithaca. Uh, technically, the end of uh, 13. But really, 14 uh, is where everything starts. Then we saw everything that he's been through on Ithaca. Insults from Antinous and Eurymachus, as well as Leodes. Insults from Melantho and Melanthios, seeing his poor dog, Argos, die, almost being accosted by other dogs that belong to him that Eumaeus keeps. And uh, now we have seen a grand melee between him and the suitors, and it is time for us to conclude this story. So, where we ended last time. Athena graced the looks of Odysseus. Recall that Odysseus and his men, Philoetius, Eumaeus, and Telemachus, have just done away with the suitors. They have killed the suitors and begun their judgments. And in their judgments, they decided to um, uh, first uh, cut off many of the appendages of Melanthios, including his nose, ears, feet, and hands, um, as well as to hang 12 out of the 50 suit, uh, 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 serving women who were the disloyal serving women, as identified by Eurycleia. And it was actually Telemachus who came up with that idea, rather than beheading them, as he was encouraged to do or uh, instructed to do by Odysseus. Penelope was then woken up by Eurycleia, who, uh, and Penelope thought Eurycleia was acting crazy, saying that uh, Odysseus had come back and the suitors had been killed. Then Penelope thought, well, perhaps the suitors have been killed, but definitely Odysseus hasn't come back. But Eurycleia insists that that's the truth. Then, then Penelope descends the stairs. She sees this bloody mess of a man. It's Odysseus. She doesn't know whether to hug him or to test him. And uh, Odysseus says, okay, well, let's just uh, let me take a bath, and then we'll sit down across from each other. And uh, Penelope says that then they will share secret signs. Because recall, Telemachus had been uh, rather upset with her. He's like, why, why, why are you so cold, so icy? Why don't you go and embrace your husband after 20 years? And uh, Penelope assures him that she will, if this does happen to be uh, her husband. And so Odysseus sits across from Penelope, now clean, now taller, now his hair is curlier, and now his muscles are bulkier. He no longer looks like the uh, dirty beggar that he was when he first entered Ithaca, but now far more like the king that he is. And as he sits across from her, and she still keeps her distance from him, both emotional and physical, she, uh, he says to her, Daimonia, that means you're very strange. There's something strange about you. Strange woman who will not speak to me. And she actually, she returns the word to him. She calls him a Daimonion. That's the uh, uh, male version. I technically neuter in this case. But, um, and uh, uh, so she, she then decides uh, Penelope to test Odysseus. She's going to, uh, she says, okay, um, well, well, this is what happens. Uh, 
Odysseus says, okay, if you, if you are, find me strange and um, are not yet ready to accept that I'm your husband, perhaps I can uh, have some other sleeping arrangement tonight. Uh, it's getting late. Uh, generally, a wife and a husband would sleep together in the same bed. We saw that both in Pylos with Nestor and his wife, as well as in Sparta with Helen and Menelaus. But um, uh, Odysseus says, perhaps we are not yet uh, really rejoined. Perhaps you're not ready to accept this, and we can find some other accommodation for you. And this gives Penelope her opportunity to start her attempt at uh, a trick or a test of wh who this person is. Because there's something about Odysseus's bed that only Odysseus would know. When he first built his house, he built it around a tree. And in fact, in the middle of the house, this tree is still rooted. And in the middle of uh, the room that this tree is still rooted, his bed is actually attached to its trunk. One of the posts of the bed is actually the trunk of this tree. So can the bed of Odysseus move? Absolutely not. It is rooted to the ground. And so Penelope decides to ask a question, or rather say something like this to Odysseus. She says, okay, well, I'll just take our bed out of our room and give it to you to sleep on, which deeply upsets Odysseus. Because if the bed in his room can be moved, that means that the bed that he first built in that house for Penelope and him has been moved, which means uh, symbolically that Penelope, to him, that Penelope has moved on from him and has chosen a new bed and therefore a new bed fellow. Let's read this now. Open to page 340. And I might even have us flip back to 339 very quickly just to see, uh, just to see how clever this, uh, this Penelope is. Well, Let's, uh, let's even start with, uh, let's actually start back on 339 at 166. Bless you. And even right before 164. Then looking like an immortal, and I'll even, <laughs> it's funny, you have to keep going backwards to understand uh, uh, going forward. So Athena gilded with grace his head and shoulders. Then looking like an immortal, he strode forth from the bath and came back then and sat on the chair from which he had risen opposite his wife, and now he spoke to her, saying, You are so strange. There's that daimonia word there, strange. The gods who have their homes on Olympus have made your heart more stubborn than for the rest of womankind. No other woman with spirit as stubborn as yours would keep back as you are doing from her husband, who, after much suffering, came at last in the twentieth year back to his own country. Come then, nurse, make me up a bed so that I can use it here, for this woman has a heart of iron within her. So Odysseus says, okay, just uh, make up some bed for me, uh, thinking that there must be some extra bed about. Circumspect Penelope said to him in answer, you are so strange. Again, that word daimonion, here. I am not being proud, nor indifferent, nor puzzled beyond need, but I know very well what you looked like when you went in the ship with sweeping oars from Ithaca. Come then, Euryclea, and make up a firm bed for him outside the well-fashioned chamber. The very bed that he himself built. Put the firm bed here outside for him. And cover it over with fleeces and blankets and with shining coverlets. And I want you to observe the transformation in Odysseus when he hears this. So she spoke to her husband, trying him out, testing him. But Odysseus spoke in anger to his virtuous-minded lady. What you have said, dear lady, has hurt my heart deeply. What man has put my bed in another place? But it would be difficult 
were even a very expert one, unless a god coming to help in person were easily to change its position. Uh, it'd be hard to move it. But there is no mortal man alive, no strong man who lightly could move the weight elsewhere. There is one particular feature in the bed's construction. I myself, no other man, made it. There was the bole of an olive tree, olive trees again, with long leaves growing strongly in the courtyard, and it was thick like a column. I laid down my chamber around this and built it until I finished it with close-set stones and roofed it well over and added the compacted doors fitting closely together. Then I cut away the foliage, the leaves, of the long-leaved olive and trimmed the trunk from the roots up, planing it with a brazen adze, well and expertly. So he makes it look less like a tree, more like a bedpost. Intrude it straight to a chalk line, making a bedpost of it, and bored all holes with an auger. I began with this and built my bed until it was finished and decorated it with gold and silver ivory. Then I lashed it with thongs of ox hide, dyed bright with purple. There is its character as I tell you, but I do not know now, dear lady, whether my bed is still in place or if some man has cut underneath the stump of the olive and moved it elsewhere. This is apparently exactly the secret sign or set of secret signs, the secret words, the secret knowledge that only Odysseus would have about the construction of his particular bed that only he, as man, has ever slept in. Um, and so we see a reaction from Penelope. We see some more emotion. So he spoke into her knees, and the heart within her went slack. Oh, as she recognized the clear purse that Odysseus had given, but then she burst into tears and ran straight to him, throwing her arms around the neck of Odysseus and kissed him, saying, Do not be angry with me, Odysseus, since uh, yada, 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 and we have to move on with the lecture. They are reunited. Odysseus and Penelope, after Penelope has now tested Odysseus in the same way that Odysseus was attempting to test her and all those in the household. The ultimate test, apparently, seems to be the one that Penelope gives to him. Uh, are you truly Odysseus, the man who set down the foundation of not only this home, but this bed, meaning this relationship, and even this land of Ithaca. Are you the man who has done all of this? And the answer is yes, and a whole lot more at this point. And so, uh, something I just want to note to you that uh, scholars find interesting about this passage is the fact that it seems like Penelope gets Odysseus. And when I say gets, I don't just mean understands him, but gets him in the way that someone who has deceived uh, a friend in a trick gets them, as if she seems to get the better of him in this moment, and she is the only person that we see during the entirety of the Odyssey, uh, besides himself, who gets the better of him. The only other time we really see him uh, sort of defeated is when he uh, is overcome by his own pride when he yells his name to Polyphemus. But again, we have him uh, give in to an emotional reaction, give up his head, give, give in to anger. And who is it that gets him to do that? Well, it's uh, Penelope. And so um, sometimes students are very interested in who is the wiser of the two. And uh, Penelope does trick Odysseus, but perhaps he tricks her earlier. Right? We'll have to debate that during the seminar, I suppose. In any case, here is an image, uh, a recreation of the bed. If you're interested in that sort of thing, you might do that yourself. Here's a, another sort of idea. Even though I think that the, uh, the true idea of the olive uh, tree is just, just that it is a post, not all four posts. But I do think this is a pretty idea. You can see uh, Penelope kind of hiding in the background there. All right. They finally embrace. And then they spend the night talking of Odysseus's journeys and his journeys yet to come. I suppose I say that I'll read that to you as you write this. And so I want you to note that Odysseus leaves very little outside of his tale. So if I'm reading from, let's see, 265 to 2. 
Again, we see this strange word in uh, line 264. You are so strange. Why do you urge me on and tell me to speak of it? Yet I will tell you, concealing nothing, your heart will have no joy in this. And I myself am not happy since he told me to go among many cities of men, taking my well-shaped oar in my hands and bearing it, until I come where there are men living who know nothing of the sea, and who eat food that is not mixed with salt, who never have known ships whose cheeks are painted purple, who never have known well-shaped oars which act for ships as wings do. And then he told me a very clear proof. This is Tiresias he's talking about. This is Odysseus saying that he doesn't get to stay. I will not conceal it. When as I walk, come, uh, some other wayfarer happens to meet me and says I carry a winnow fan on my bright shoulder, then I must plant my well-shaped oar in the ground and render ceremonious sacrifice to the Lord Poseidon. One ram and one bull and a mounter of sows, a boar pig, and make my way home again and render holy hecatombs to the immortal gods who hold the wide heaven, heaven, all of them in order. Death will come to me from the sea. In some altogether unwarlike way, it will end me in the ebbing time of a sleek old age. My people about me will prosper. All this, Tiresias told me, would be accomplished. All right, all right. I want you to quickly take a look now. Take a look at lines 310 to 330. Let's look at page 343. I just want you to see uh, the uh, story Odysseus tells Penelope and a couple of details that he does not leave out that people occasionally, especially modern readers, think that he would leave out. If you were going to leave out any parts of Odysseus's story as Odysseus talking to your wife, who you've just met again, which uh, parts of the story might you be tempted to leave out? I'd say probably the parts about Circe, who he spent a year with uh, and lay with, and also Calypso, who he spent seven years with, and yet... He began with how he had beaten the Caconians, and then gone to the rich country of men who feed on the lotus. He told all that the Cyclops had done, and how he took vengeance on him for strong companions he had eaten and shown no pity. How he came to Aeolus, who generously received him, and gave him passage, but it was not fated for him to come back yet to his country. So the storm winds caught and carried him out again on the sea where the fish swarmed, groaning heavily. And how he came to Telepolos of the Lystragones. That's the name of their city, if you didn't notice that the first time around. And these men had destroyed his ships and strong-grieved companions, all but Odysseus only got away with his black ship. He told her of the guile and the many devices of Circe, Circe, and how he had gone into the moldering home of Hades, there to consult the soul of Theban Tiresias, going in his ship with many benches, and there saw all his companions and his mother, who had borne him and nursed him when he was little. He told how he had heard the song of the echoing sirens and made his way to the roving rocks and dreaded Charybdis and Scylla. Oh, I should have listed that up there. Whom no men ever yet have escaped without damage. He told how his companions ate the cattle of Helios and told how Zeus, who thunders on high, had struck his fast ship with a smoky thunderbolt and all his noble companions perished alike. Only he escaped the evil death spirits how he came on or came to the island Ogygia and the nymph Calypso who detained him with her desiring that he should be her husband in her hollow caverns and she took care of him and told him that she would make him ageless all his days and immortal but never so could she persuade the heart that was in him then how after much suffering he reached the Phaeacians who honored him in their hearts as if he were a god and sent him back by ship to the beloved land of his fathers, bestowing bronze and gold in abundance on him, and clothing, <laughs> and clothing, I like that note, because obviously he showed up 
to Scria with no clothing on, having been in the sea for uh, a couple days after being on the sea for 18 days. Uh, back by ship to the beloved land of his fathers and clothing. Yes, and this was the last word he spoke to her when the sweet sleep came to relax his limbs and slip the cares from his spirit. So he leaves nothing out in his uh, account to Penelope. And so I want you to note that, note that he is not dishonest with her about where he has been and what he has seen and what he has uh, done. In any case, on to book 24. Let us conclude this uh, epic poem. Book 24, I want you to recall, uh, uh, for book 24 of the Odyssey, I want you to recall book 24 of the Iliad. Recall in book 24 of the Iliad, we had Priam, who is uh, going from a land, we call it a land sort of like the land of the living, to a land sort of like the land of the dead. And he was accompanied himself by a particular god, Argephantes, uh, Argus killer, that's Hermes. And he had to go across a river and into a camp that had a gate around it. And in there he met a figure pitiless like death. And in fact, uh, went to this pitiless death-like figure to collect his son. But unlike sort of a positive but odd Greek mythological story where somebody goes to the underworld and they bring a living person back, uh, that, that doesn't really ever happen, uh, except in the Disney movie Hercules, uh, it, uh, when Orpheus actually attempts that in actual Greek mythology with his wife, it doesn't quite work out. It, uh, it doesn't really work out. In any case, Priam doesn't get to take a living person back from this land of the dead. He gets to take a dead body back. But uh, we have something very similar here. Again, in book 24, at the end of the story, we have dead spirits. Uh, these are the spirits of the suitors, the shades, being led by Hermes again to the actual underworld. And in the actual underworld, very different from how it first was perceived by us in book 11, uh, Agamemnon and Achilleus are actually having a conversation with each other. And they're, uh, rather than fighting with each other as they were, standing in division of conflict in the first 11 lines of the Iliad, they now seem to be joined in friendship. And this will be the theme of the final book of the Odyssey. Just as uh, what begins in conflict when one gives into anger or wrath or one's emotions can be uh, resolved by one's intelligence. Uh, when one gives into Ares, one must fix this situation with Athena. As it were. And so Achilleus and company are conversing with Agamemnon. Achilleus, of all people, compliments Agamemnon's high place while he lives. You recall, very different from him calling him a dog, a greedy dog in book one of the Iliad, and saying that he would never, in uh, book nine, ever come back, uh, even if uh, uh, to the fighting, even if Agamemnon gave him as many gifts as there were grains of sand on the beach where his uh, ship were, was moored. And he says, Oh, Agamemnon, you lived in such a high place while you lived. Uh, you were the great uh, marshal of our people, <coughs> or of your people, and uh, of all other peoples who were at Troy, uh, who fought against the Trojans. But even though you died in an inglorious way, and then Agamemnon describes uh, the immortal honors given to Achilleus, and at his funeral he even had goddesses come. Supposedly he had the Nereids, there were about 40 of them, and I think even by some accounts the Muses came too, uh, quite the honored Funeral. These two men who started the Iliad, who started this epic cycle insulting each other, in conflict with each other, are now in harmony with each other, are now complementing each other. Uh, this will, uh, you will remember this when you read uh, the Paradiso next year, uh, books, uh, or excuse me, Cantos 10 through 14, or sorry, hmm, is it 10 through 14? Uh, yeah, I believe it is 10 through 14, um, when uh, Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, who were intellectual opponents, actually, uh, complement each other's uh, monastic orders. 
next year. And uh, perhaps it will mean something very similar to this. In any case, Agamemnon continues. After you died, and he has to tell Achilles this, because Achilles obviously wasn't alive to see his own funeral, you had 17 days of funeral rites. That's over two weeks. Uh, and remember, uh, Hector only gets uh, 12 days, so uh, Achilles gets more. And the bones of Achilles ah, were mixed in the same amphora with Patroclus, just as Patroclus had requested of Achilles in the dream Achilles has when he sleeps on the beach in Book 23 um, of the Iliad. And uh, he says, uh, the amphora was made by Hephaestus, which was a present of Dionysus, a god, uh, and that your fame will be eternal, Achilles. And so these two men are giving encomia to each other. Oh, you're the most famous. Oh, no, you go on. You're the most famous. All right. While that is happening, Hermes then leads in the dead suitors to, the ha to Hades. I really like this picture. You know I saw uh, uh, um, uh, Hermes from a th few things. The two snake, Caduceus, the um, winged sandals, as well as the winged cap. He received the winged sandals and cap from uh, Apollo, and he gave him a lyre, and, um, uh, which is a little small Greek harp in exchange. The first day that he was born, uh, after stealing some cattle from Apollo, which you know, uh, uh, Apollo really cares about that cattle. <laughs> All right. So, Amphimedon and the suitors show up with Hermes. Agamemnon asks what happened. Amphimedon then describes the events of the text. He says, well, Penelope, we were trying to court her, and for three years she came up with this stratagem of weaving a web during the day that she said was going to be a shroud for Laertes, the father of Odysseus, but then she would unweave it at night so that she would functionally never finish this task so that she would never have to marry us. We figured it out, however. Uh, then uh, a few days ago, or uh, a few weeks in this case, Telemachus uh, got it into his head to have an assembly and then to go out on the high seas and go to Pylos and Sparta and then come back. Well, then this beggar showed up around the same time that Telemachus came back, and there was this contest for stringing the bow, or stringing Odysseus's old bow made of horn from his old guest friend who had unfortunately been killed by Heracles. And, uh, and uh, then... Then uh, this beggar strings the bow, shoots through these 12 axes, and, well, he causes the death of all of us. Agamemnon then takes this moment to uh, say something very different from what he said in the Underworld. Recall in the Underworld, he had made this claim about Clytemnestra that her betrayal of him had shamed womankind for all time. Very universal sort of statement there. All women for all time. Shamed. And so that, that, that admits of no exception at no moment and by no woman. However, Agamemnon seems to uh, still uh, be uh, fairly capable of going back on his word, of rethinking the things he said. Just sort of like how he would often suggest that uh, the Achaeans would flee from Troy, but could be convinced not to flee from Troy to his own uh, honor, because he eventually defeats the Trojans with the help of Odysseus and everybody else. But Agamemnon calls Odysseus fortunate for not being betrayed by Penelope. Perhaps it is fortunate. Perhaps it was fortune that helped Odysseus. But it seems far more likely, given the fact that it is Athena and the work of Odysseus's hands and his own clever stratagems, that it was not so much fortune that got him what he wanted, so much as intelligence and cunning and strategic planning and execution and emotion control. It was not... By any means, fortune. I, I'll tell you, that is a way that sort of people will attempt to denigrate you if you achieve much in your life. Uh, they'll say, well, you only did that because your parents were wealthy. Or you only did that because you had a great coach. Or you only did that. What they're saying is, you're the one who did that. I'm not the one who did that. Uh, in fact, there's a very famous quote, and I, I love it, from Thucydides. He was an Athenian general. 
who was uh, exiled for 10 years in an act that they called ostracism, which is where we get our word ostracism from, which is when you're excluded from a group by people. And so you're feeling pretty bad, your friends won't hang out with you, you say, I feel ostracized. Here's the quote. A man was talking to Thucydides and he said, you would not have been the great general you are had you not been an Athenian. Ooh, whoa, good. Thucydides says, yeah, that's true. However, even had you been an Athenian, you would not have been the great general that I am. I love that. It says, uh, yes, I did need the resources I was given in order to become the man I am. However, even if you had those resources, you would never be the man that I am. I love that as a response. Very good. In any case, Odysseus doesn't need to say anything to Agamemnon and Achilles, because they're both obviously dead, and he's not. So, Telemachus and Odysseus go on the way to Laertes. So, the last person in Ithaca that Odysseus needs to test and reveal himself to is his father, Laertes. Remember, he's still alive, even though his mother, unfortunately, Anticlea, has died and died uh, due to pining for her son. Laertes is still alive, though he lives in misery. He's now sort of a farmer. He sleeps with his dogs, which is considered sort of unclean. He wears a hat, a cap, that supposedly adds to his misery. I don't know why it adds to his misery. If it's heavy, if it's hot, if it's ugly, if it's all of those. Um, but it's some sort of ugly cap that adds to his misery. And he just sort of dollars about each day with very little hope for the future, thinking that his son is dead and uh, his grandson is apparently not something he's very proud of at this particular moment. In any case, as Odysseus approaches this man, he considers, sort of like how Penelope considered these same options when she saw this uh, dirty, beggar, bloody man who claimed to be Odysseus in front of her just a book ago, uh, just hugging his dad or testing him. Okay, do I hug him? Do I test him? And Odysseus actually ends up mocking Laertes when he first talks to him. He says, ah, you, you look fairly uh, ill-cared for. Who, whose servant are you? This is the former king of Ithaca. This was the king of Ithaca who raised Odysseus, and so that's, that's a very disrespectful thing to say to his father. This is a test, after all. Um, uh, and then, so, Odysseus starts to tell a lie, and uh, as we've seen before with Eumaeus, as we've seen before with Penelope, and he says, I, I once knew an Odysseus, but it's been years, and um, when he says he knew an Odysseus, Laertes actually starts to cry in front of Odysseus, and this seems to be just a little bit too much for Odysseus. Just as keeping his name from Polyphemus was too much for his pride, just as um, uh, uh, hearing that his wife might have, have gotten rid of the bed that he founded his house on and built his house around, got his goat, so does seeing his father cry in front of him uh, get his goat. Even though he claims himself to be a paratos, note that he calls himself a paratos here, not Ithon, uh, uh, as more sorrow closes over his father, uh, Odysseus just admits who he is. You might say that that is the proof that Odysseus needs, that his father still cares about him and is loyal to him, the fact that he is so sad at even hearing his son's name, his son who he thinks long death, his son who is right in front of him. And so Odysseus shows his scar and says, look, look, I am Odysseus. But he gives one additional proof to his father. And uh, myself getting to fathering age and uh, being a teacher, which is, in a way, like uh, sort of a father for an hour at a time to my students, I, and, and given exactly what this example is, this touches my heart. How Odysseus proves that uh, this is his, that he is himself, that he is Odysseus to Laertes, is he, he recalls an episodic memory, a memory that he and Laertes share together. And it is a very father-son memory. 
It is a memory of when Laertes would take Odysseus out and show him the trees and teach them what they were. It is a perfect father-son moment of teaching and educating. Dad, what's that? Oh, well, that's an elm tree. Dad, what's that? Well, that's an olive tree. Dad, what's that? Well, that's a fir tree. Uh, not that firs or elms would exist in the Mediterranean. But uh, Odysseus himself shares secret signs, secret uh, memories that only he would have, only he would share with his father. And so his uh, father uh, accepts him as Odysseus. He himself bathes. He is then renewed. You know that baths uh, make you look good in, the, uh, in all days, those days as well as these. And then we meet Dolio. Something interesting about fathers and good fathers here. And uh, uh, bad seeds, as it were. Or bad apples that come uh, far from the tree, as we would say. Uh, if Odysseus is very like Laertes and Telemachus is very like Odysseus, it is not the case that the children of Dolios are very like him. He is himself a very faithful servant to uh, Laertes, very similar to Eurydice or Eurycleia. However, his two children might shock you. They are the same Melanthios, who we recently saw uh, lose his appendages and limbs, and also Melantho, who recently was choked to death by means of hanging. Um, and so, uh, something interesting there. Uh, more about fathers. Now, the ruse that Odysseus had Telemachus put into action to uh, mimic a wedding at their home to cover the deaths of the suitors has passed. Rumor has spread. People have heard that these suitors, 108 of them, have been killed, and the fathers and the families are furious, including the father of Antinous. And recall, the father of Antinous is the one, Eupathes, who was once uh, had a debt paid off. By, uh, by Odysseus for him. He is a man who owes his very life and family to Odysseus, and he is the man who is trying to rouse the rabble right now, and to rouse a posse, and to go kill Odysseus with them. And so, as he's attempting to do this, Medon, the herald of Odysseus, who was recently spared, claims Odysseus did this with the consent of the gods, which is literally true. Uh, these suitors were going against the Zinnia. So not only Zeus, but also, obviously, Athena, who showed up during the battle in the guise of Mentor are on the side of Odysseus. The gods are on the side of Odysseus. Mentor, actual mentor, not Athena here, then agrees. So there's division in the ranks. However, that said, passion, anger, wrath overwhelms the families. And they join Eupathes and they march on to Laertes' home to fight against uh, <laughs> uh, Laertes, Odysseus, and Telemachus. Again, very bad odds, but um, they seem to believe in themselves. And well, then Athena, we shift gears again, we shift back to Olympus. She talks to uh, Zeus and she says, well, what, what, what are we going to do uh, now? Uh, is everything just going to start all over again? Is this going to be itself another battle against the suitors, the suitors' family? Is this going to be its own Theban conflict, its own Trojan war? Will this conflict ever end? And Zeus says, no, no, now's the time for friendship. Unlike in uh, book... Uh, Three or book four of uh, the Iliad where Hera and Zeus met together and had the opportunity to talk about ending the war and uh, Hera said, no, 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 I will not rest until Troy is in uh, uh, a smoldering ruin, essentially. Uh, Hera does not pop up here. Actually, you don't see Hera at all during the course of the Odyssey. You only really see three of the Olympian gods, Hermes, Athena, and Odysseus. Um, and you hear a little bit about Hephaestus and Dionysus and Ares, and you hear a story about Ares and Aphrodite. You never really see them in the same way that you do in the Iliad, which I think makes you appreciate the Iliad when you look back on it. That you 
had such close proximity to the gods. In any case, Zeus says time for friendship. How, how are we going to resolve this situation? Passions seem to be flaring high. All right. Well, Laertes, Odysseus, and Telemachus stand together. And actually, Odysseus, uh, Telemachus claims that he's going to attempt to kill more people than Odysseus. And Laertes gets to have this wonderful moment where he says, oh, never did I think that I would have a moment where I would be standing alongside my son and my grandson and watching them both contend for greater valor and honor in front of me. It's like he gets to see a vision of the future, and the future looks bright rather than gloomy. And he's so happy to see his son and grandson competing for valor. Well, as they approach the suitors, apparently Eupathes is in the front of the suitors' families. Laertes is in the front of Odysseus' family. Laertes throws first. He throws his spear. It hits Eupathes in the face. Eupathes dies. And then Athena calls out to end the battle. Now Odysseus continues to charge forward after hearing this call. But Zeus decides to uh, um, uh, uh, support his daughter and throws a thunderbolt down in front of Odysseus between the suitors' families and, the, uh, and Odysseus. And they pause. They pause in the battle. It is time for peace. The king of the gods has declared it is time for peace. There will be peace. So this book ends, and this epic cycle ends, with pledges being made between each side. So just as what began with conflict, with rage overweening, ends, and rage itself being sort of an animal thing, it ends with humanity, with truce, with conflict being put to rest in order for the violence and the death finally to end. To end. The, the meaning, the theme, the, the message of the story being, if you wish to stop violence, do you do it by increasing the amount of violence that there is, or do you finally put uh, uh, your desire for revenge to rest so that you can move on with your life? The most human thing you can do, this book seems to be claiming, is to not take vengeance, even when it is just, because that will only lead to more and more bloodshed, to more and more just vengeance being taken. I kill your father, your... Uh, Brother kills me, my sister kills you, your cousin kills her. It goes on and on and on in a cycle of never-ending violence. So that is itself animal, perhaps human, but to forgive, to put it to rest, so that you can all live, I suppose, happy, happily and prosperously is what is um, divine. That was the Odyssey students.